Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So there are two types of acquisitions, generally speaking. There's a financial buyer and a strategic buyer. So the financial buyer is trying to look at your company and try to evaluate how likely it is that you're going to make profits in the future. And then they're going to simply place a value today on what they're willing to spend in today's dollars for your future stream of profit. Makes creating your business, making it really reliable, making your projections really bulletproof important in a financial acquisition. A strategic acquisition is a completely different animal. And a strategic is looking at not how much profit you're going to make in the future. A strategic acquirer is saying, okay, if we buy this business, how much more of our stuff can we sell? It requires a complete mind shift for the entrepreneur. If we go into an acquisition thinking that the acquirer is going to care about selling more of our stuff, we're missing the headline. The real big multiples where you're seeing companies trade for multiples of revenue, not multiples of EBITDA, happen when a strategic has a strategic reasons to go out and buy your company. They're valuing, again, how much more of their stuff can they sell? It's what happened to Nick Kellett when he went to sell Next Action Technologies. He got eight times revenue for his company. That's not eight times EBITDA, that's eight times revenue. And he did that by asking himself, how much more of their stuff can they sell by buying our company? Here's Nick Kellett to tell you the rest of the story. Nick Kellett, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Delighted to be here. So tell us a little bit about this company, Next Action Technology. I understand you started it back in 97? That's right. Yeah, it was basically um, in the business intelligence space, so query and reporting tools. And you lost a, me already. I don't know what a query and reporting tool is. Okay. Well, you know, you, you run uh, queries and reports to get stuff from your business data. So products uh, like Crystal Reports, you may have heard of. Okay. Uh, business Objects, was it big there? Crystal, uh, sorry, Cognos was another one, another big player. And so basically reports to, you know, sales analysis, you know, any kind of listings, invoicing, printing off anything, any of your transactional data, you know, the whole big data warehousing, big data scene was kind of on, on the emerge. And um, basically we spotted a business problem that I'd been sitting with for, I, I was probably on the third or first time of trying to solve this problem, which is basically people suck at ands and ors. I don't know if you've ever used, If you, it sounds like you haven't used a query and reporting tool, so you might not connect with the problem. But the, the problem was that basically, you, know, you ask a question of a database and you have to put all the ands and ors in the right place or you get the wrong answer or no answer. And we simply said, well, why don't we use Venn diagrams? You know, we all remember Venn diagrams from school and you kind of draw two or three overlapping circles and you can say, oh, these guys are, these are the men, these are the you know, people who've bought in the last three months. And then you can choose which, you can just visually click on, on the diagram, the, the segments that you want. And it's so much easier than trying to express yourself in ands and ors. And this sounds like a feature that would be available in a in a business intelligence software like a salesforce.com or something like that so but but you had is this was a, a company or were you licensing this technology to third-party uh, companies 
basically, we this technology could work with any of the leading query and reporting tools, right? So we didn't displace them; we just made them work better. And uh, that was kind of really our sales pitch: is you know, your 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 users are sucking at asking questions. It doesn't matter what tool you're using; it's hard. This makes it easy. This makes it quicker. It makes it more effective. Um, you know, if you're asking a lot of questions and you've got a a, you know, a serious team kind of getting value out of your data, you should be using this tool. And we had we had people like uh, Shell uh, using it for retail segmentation in the UK. We had a big bank, Abbey National, was one of our first uh, first customers. And and just basically people with too much data and they didn't really know what questions to ask. But because when you when you have that much data, you ask a question and the Oracle churns in those days. It was Oracle churns away in the background, and comes back with the answer zero. And it's like, oh, okay. I remove one condition, and the answer is like way too big. And you, how do you people actually knew what answer they kind of had because they had a budget to go after a certain set of customers or something, uh, but they couldn't get to that answer because they were guessing from the database. So we just made it simple, and uh, you know, step one, we basically allowed them to made it visual, made it stepwise and we used segment set set based uh, approach which was what differentiated us so and you sold was, it directly to the end customer the shell uh the uh, the banks and so forth we did but we also partnered we partnered with kind of management consultancies who were doing big projects like that and we also had a var channel so we were we were selling it through i guess business intelligence you know data data consulting companies that were helping people uh, get value from their data. So we, and we were working, we, we, we started in the UK and we built this product. Uh, six weeks later, we actually were at a trade show, first trade show after you know, writing the first lines of code and we were demonstrating it at a trade show. And that's where I actually got to meet the CTO of Business Objects. You know, so it was, and, and we, we also got to meet our first customers at this event. It's a pretty cool kind of turnaround and timeline. And here we were kind of pitching it and, and explaining it or trying to explain it, right? I always remember the um, phone call after that that I went and met the guy from Abbey National. He says, Nick, you said something. I don't think I understood any of it, but I'm really, you've, you're you onto something. I'm interested. I don't, I want to know more. And he just called us in for a meeting and we dug deeper and sure, I, I, I learned a lot from that experience. I learned what words they were using to describe their problem. And then we started using those words, and you know that's when we kind of you know you can begin to get some traction when you can explain yourself, right? Uh, when you can explain your product and your idea, and um, we kind of you know brushed up with with business objects as well in the UK. We were we got to be pretty good friends pretty quick with uh, their marketing team, and business we kind of, objects being the company that ultimately bought you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could have we could have you know. We could have actually remained independent. It was one option, or we could have sold to any of the business intelligence vendors, right? Uh, and looking back, we we partnered up with Business Objects very early, and and it was just a very natural fit, and they were open minded. Some of the other vendors were a little more closed, but they became more closed because we'd already buddied up. So it's funny how you how alliances can actually you know. Um, structure and direct your uh, your path so to speak so at, what, at what point did you think that the business objects relationship could become more than just a, a friendly partnership it could be an acquisition I mean, did, did you go into the relationship knowing that hey this would be a natural acquirer for us it, it, 
kind of did, right? Because I met the, the right people really early. So I didn't have to go finding them. And we just kept pinging and keeping on their radar. We we got connected up with the M&A team pretty early. And, How did that happen? Oh, I think I'm trying. I actually don't recall the, the series of events, but basically, oh, well, one definite way it happened was we were uh, helping UK sell deals because it was weird. We like this was ninety seven to ninety nine, and the internet was just emerging. So we did we did actually do some international transactions, but it was mostly UK, and we were helping them in the UK with their deals. And they were like, mm, "We want to be able to resell this." So they the UK team drove this up the corporate ladder to um, to San Jose and Paris, where Business is located. And and then I guess that's how we got introduced to those guys. And we basically did, the first thing we did was a, a UK licensing deal that let them resell it for us on on that, uh, in the UK. And really that was kind of a, that then led to a kind of global licensing deal. And then that, they, these guys just kept us busy with hindsight. I look back and think I should have slowed down in that process and, and not let them keep us so occup- preoccupied with keeping on top of all their stuff. Um, cause it's Why? a full, uh, it's a full-time job to like service that kind of level of company and all the demands. And maybe we just weren't ready for it. Hmm. What did um, you have the business up to in terms of revenue by 99? We were at about a million, yeah, a million dollars of revenue. So, um, it was interesting. I mean, one of, you, you know, one of the big things that was looming for us, uh, was, was Y2K, right? It seems like most people like, what's that? But at the time, Y2K was this enormous beast coming down the track. You know, people were predicting that planes were going to fall out of the sky and the world was going to end and all this kind of stuff. And it, it, it didn't clearly that's with hindsight, but running into like the end of Q4 1999, not knowing, um, we we were tr- we had set ourselves some targets and we were trying to achieve those sales targets and just maybe it's just some, knowing what I know now I think some of that was just a little bit over ambitious and knowing how tough it is to gain traction on a product we were doing well um, but you know it's like funny we we we'd sold stuff into Abbey National was, and I think we probably sold them about a hundred thousand pounds worth of of software and services and post acquisition. Um, Within within a month, Business Objects had got them signed up for two hundred and fifty thousand pounds worth of software, and it's like, oh man, you know, we would we would have loved to have had that, but they would never have spent that with us, right? Because it was too much of a risk. It was really easy to spend that kind of money once they were with Business Objects, and it was a big trusted brand. So that was a, a lot of the reason to sell, if you like. Um, the it's a challenge to create and you know, like cross the chasm and end up on the other side of the chasm as as your own independent vendor. You've basically got to allow time to get the traction, build the brand awareness. We we've done a pretty good job in the UK actually of people being aware of us. Like I would go to trade shows and people would say, "I've got I'm going to buy your software." I'm like, "Oh, who are you? Never heard of you." Oh, well, I've been following you, and uh, they followed us in the media and. They put budget aside to buy a product. It's like, whoa! So you know, it's like, go ahead. No, it's, and that that doesn't happen today. Like in that sense, right? Because of the internet, the, the power of the consumer has shifted so much. I mean, those people, some of those people didn't contact us until they were at a trade show. But back in you know, today, you can keep consuming and and passively, uh, you know, learning about products without engaging in a brand. So that kind of feedback was awesome. Neat. So, what was the triggering event that made you get serious about selling? Um, 
it just really was like a series of dominoes that from licensing in the UK to licensing globally um, to then going, oh, you know what? I mean, I kind of, this metaphor always sticks with me is I always thought, you know, business objects was this on this train track and we stuck the truck, our tiny little truck across their train track. And, and we did that in so many ways and little deals. They hated losing control of the sales process because we came in and said, oh, their product's slow. It's not their product. It was just Oracle plus standard query tool, big data equals slow results. And we kind of solved that. They didn't like that. They liked to control their own sales process. And so it, it became very obvious that there was an acquisition going to flow from that. And it was just then a case of who and uh, and you know, should, should we go and court more broadly? And we did a little bit of that, but it was pretty hard to, because people felt, uh, other vendors felt mistrusting because we were so already, so we got um, so entwined with business objects so early um, that they didn't really allow us to get too close, right? So, hmm. did, um, you, did you hire an M&A firm to, to, to do that sort of feeling out of the marketplace or were you representing yourself? We represented ourselves. Like I, so I, by the end of it, I talked to, you know, uh, I definitely talked to Cognos. I'd had some kind of, you know, uh, exchanges with, um, MicroStrategy, there was another big player, but there was, there, they just had, it wasn't just that we'd started with business objects. They, they just had a different mindset of where they were going. They saw the world differently and we just fitted with business objects mindset. So we, we had some conversations, but they just, you know, they were, they were long and slow and, and there wasn't, there wasn't the appetite. There was some urgency to close a transaction with business objects. So, um, and we had an, an M&A firm kind of came and pitched us uh, and, you know, kind of sold, tried to sell us on the value of what they were doing. But we were, it wasn't as if we went already deeply down a track and it was just an easy, uh, easy process to follow through. So tell us about this. So you're, this train is sort of gathering momentum. Um, who made the first move? I mean, did they ask you, okay, Nick, what would, you know, what would you sell your business for? Did they put a number in front of you? How did that work? Oh, that was ugly. <laughs> um, the first time they basically, uh, the M&A guy got involved and he was just a nightmare. Um, and I, that was my intuition, but later on he got replaced and the new M&A guy that was there after I'd got acquired was just amazing. I was like, okay, that's what a real M&A guy does. This guy was just, you know, uh, he, he hadn't done it before in any real sense, right? And so he was very... He, he wanted to come to the UK and I'm like, just don't just, you know, let's talk numbers before you even get on the plane. You're just going to waste your time. Um, and he was blah, 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 all this kind of like rhetoric. And all he wanted to do was a business trip to the UK. And he had his idea of a number he was going to put in front of us. So we were, at, we were at a trade show and, uh, we kind of disappeared out of the trade show, left the booth with the guys uh, running it and, um, took us up to this, this suite and, and he, he drew out this kind of this flip chart and he put this number on the flip chart. And I went, okay, let's go back to the trade show. <laughs> and it, it was literally over in minutes. It was just almost embarrassing for him. And he said, well, come on, you can you know, do this and do that and have a trip to Acapulco. And it was the Acapulco thing. I'll never forget that. My business partner, my, my co-founder was just like so irritated by that, which was perfect. Cause the last thing you want to do is have one guy wanting to sell and one not. But his Acapulco jive was just like, ah, uh, get out of here. You were, you were, you were, you were offended by the. He, he obviously took you as a simpleton. 
Well, he was just a cheapskate, right? And they hadn't actually acquired anything before. So that would, you know, you, at this point, you begin to realize why. What was the number he wrote down on the flip chart? A uh, million dollars. <laughs> like, oh, it was just insane and crazy and just funny to look at that. And, uh, I mean, some people are listening to that and saying, okay, it's about one time's revenue. That seems about reasonable. Yeah. Like, and we went even at that point at that point. And this was probably, this is probably kind of, I forget when this was now, but it would have been a year earlier or something, right? Why were you so convinced it was worth more than a million? Well, because we were just like, we were solving a hard problem and there was no way they were capable of building such a, a solution because they're too, they're too focused on solving their existing problems right under their nose. I mean, this is, this is the case with any technology company. Once you've already got a product that's doing a specific thing, all your resources are sucked into supporting that and all the things that it doesn't do that it should, not going off in a different direction to solve something different. And, sure, and they could have hired some, you know, whiz engineers out of MIT and put together something. I mean, you said it only took you six weeks to go from, you know, spanning start to trade show. Right. So right. Clearly, they. You. I mean, could they took, hired somebody? It's like that. It's like that. It's like that Picasso thing, right? It's how long you just you just painted something, and that took you two minutes to paint that. Yeah, but it took a lifetime to get to the point <laughs> where I could do that in that time, right? And I've been engrossed in this whole segmentation space for a long time. I'd done several iterations of a, of a product similar to that and began to realize the power of this stuff. And I mean, they just didn't have those sorts of people. They had developers who are pure code minded individuals, not business people. And I was coming out of solving a business problem and they just didn't get, they don't get that. It's the same anywhere and everywhere. I mean, they even, as we got further down the track on acquisition, they really did threaten to go build it, right? And like at the time, I was kind of like a little bit quivering in my boots at that point. But post acquisition, once I sat on the inside of a big software company, I'm going, oh my God, next time if someone ever says that to me, I'll just, excuse me for a minute, I'm just gonna roll on the floor with laughter because you know, you know they can't do that. They just don't have it in them. They don't know how to give people like, enough resources to go finish a problem, finish a solution, and then take it to market because it will fail in the marketing department because it'll it'll fail in the sales, pre-sales, it'll fail anywhere in their stack of getting this thing to market. Whereas we didn't have that. We were like, we're going to go and solve customers' problems end to end. Here it is. And you know, if we were on a customer site and it didn't do something, we were on the phone to our development team and like, how do we do that? Well, I don't know. Cool idea. Hmm, let me think about it. Okay. Two days later, we do it, right? That doesn't happen in a big company because you can't respond because at that point, business objects, any big software company is a machine that's repeating a process, right? And we were, a startup is, is a machine that's actually solving a new problem, creating a new category. And those skill sets are completely orthogonal. And, and the people who sit inside a big software company do not have those skill sets. They leave out of frustration if they have them, or they go and start their own company. So take us from the Acapulco comment on the whiteboard to, yeah. to, to the next step. What was the next chess oh. move? Well, I don't, I don't. I'm not sure. I get the sequence right here because I'm not sure how much, um, the how much licensing we we'd done at that point. But it kind of went from the UK to to global to. Uh, 
they they came back and they were later after that they came back with a with a first offer and it was a stock swap offer, um, which is a legal kind of construct in 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 the U.S. that allows you to um, for zero cash for them to acquire us from a stock swap. Right? In other words, they were going to give you business object stock in return for your e- stock. Yeah, and the crazy thing about that is there there can be no handcuffs. No golden handcuffs, no tie-in, no nothing, no no specification on our ability to sell the stock. We could have sold it the next day uh, and left the next day. So it was a big risk on their behalf, but like it basically cost them nothing in cash terms. So that was the appeal. Was it their naivety and their, the fact that they haven't done a deal that they would do a stock swap without any sort of holdbacks or? Well, they can't legally. You can't. Right? I see. I see. Right, right. And so the one thing they didn't tell us because we'd offered somebody. We, in our kind of efforts to grow, we'd offered somebody some equity, and then we'd taken it back. Well, we basically took back the offer because they hadn't met sales targets. Right? One of the prerequisites of this transaction or this like stock swap, the legality of a stock swap, was there kind of been no transactions of any sort on stock in the previous. I don't know, six or 12 months, whatever it was, I forget the law. And it hadn't really registered with us because, hey, guess what? I hadn't done an M&A before, didn't know all this stuff. And and they said, have you done any any stock you know, things? I'm sure they were more technical than that. But, Sold any shares of your company? Or- yeah, have we changed anything of your share structure or whatever? I'm like, no, we haven't. Because basically this was a kind of you know, would-be deal and we'd basically – this guy had failed to hit his target. And then, so we basically said, you know what? Nice try, no cigar. This isn't working. We're not going to do that anymore. And it was all amicable, but basically this existed, right? So they couldn't then do the stock swap. And then then, this is the kind of interesting of paranoia of legal situations. Because of that, we had to go in the end when, 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 so that I'm, I can still visualize it now. I'm sitting in this lawyer's office on the banks of the Thames, uh, really spectacular building, spectacular. You know, we're having this nice sociable conversation about stock swap. And at the time, business the business objects was, you know, this deal was worth about, you know, I don't know, eight, 10 million or whatever. And then if we'd have taken the stock swap, business, the business object stock was going up like a train, an express train, and it doubled in a very short space of time. So the deal would have been worth 20 million. Um, if we'd have had the, the, the wisdom to sell at the right moment, right? Um, but in the end, on this so, Friday, so Nick, so- just to be just to be clear, they're offering you roughly you know, somewhere between eight and ten million dollars of of value, like yeah, shares in 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 uh, business objects, right. In return for your shares, so right. his his million offer on the whiteboard or the uh, the flip chart has now gone to eight yeah. to ten on the way to twenty. Yeah, exactly. And the, the 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 twenty thing happened as with hindsight. I didn't you didn't know that because obviously, obviously the stock could have collapsed at any point, and it could also go up. So you're buying you're buying into that asset. I personally would not recommend anybody do any kind of stock transactions. Take the cash every time. Um, I know multiple people who've done that and regretted it. Um, I didn't have such a strong understanding at the time. And we were we wanted cash, but you know, the deal was there and it was like, I don't know, we didn't feel that strongly against not doing it. Anyway, this afternoon, this Friday afternoon in the lawyer's office, I went, so when you said X, well, we better tell you about the fact that we did this because if it comes out in the wash, you realize that, you know, we were on the hook for this if this ever came out. 
and we told them and they were like, oh, the guy got so mad with us. I'm like, you know, screw you. Like, you're the acquirer. You are, I am a startup. I've never done this before by definition. You know, you're, it's your, it was my perception that they should have given us more education, more hand-holding, you know, but they didn't. They were very vague because he didn't. He hadn't done it before either. So it was kind of interesting, but um, <laughs> it was nightmarish. And then just to see this whole thing disappear. And I remember going away that weekend, you know, tail between our legs, like deal disappeared. And like, you know what? What the heck? Doesn't matter. We'll carry on. We'll be good. And um, it's to have, you know, to seen it come and go was just kind of, because they basically said, you know what? We don't have any cash, which was just a complete bullshit. But, you know, we can't do the board, don't want to do blah, blah, blah. Everyone, nobody wanted to do something. They couldn't raise the cash, blah, blah, which was just complete nonsense. Anyway, I think it took about six weeks after that, something like that. And we were back at the table miraculously with um, the same amount of cash, right? So sometimes in these situations, you're being told they can't do this and they can't do that. It's, it's often not true. It's just a negotiation. It suited them to do it this way. So you go away for the weekend thinking, okay, the deal is off. Yeah. Um, how did they raise this issue that maybe there was another way to get this done? Did they call you back? Did you call them back? Like who made the next move? Uh, I think the move came from them because we couldn't really make them do anything that they didn't like weren't willing or able to do right that must so, have been excruciating just sitting with your hands you know, yeah it was, it was right? days it was and um because i remember I don't, I'm, and this is like very woolly i should have already written this down but i remember i remember going to san jose to meet the ceo of business objects because i don't think I'd, i hadn't met him and i'm thinking i probably hadn't met him until after the stock swap crash and the we turned to cash, but that might be, I might be wrong there anyway, because so I, I basically created this trip and flew over. And I remember sitting on this plane in economy and I was lucky enough to get three seats and I'm like stretched out. I'm creating my slide deck, you know, like I'm highly, highly prepared. I'm creating the slide deck creatively on the way there. And, um, and I pitched my stuff to this, to, I met Bernard Leoteau, who was the CEO of his subjects at the time and the founder and stuff, right? He's a pretty interesting guy. And I got to pitch to him and, you know, look back and think, oh my God, I have seen so many people pitch to him since and burn and, you know, die on the spot just for the you know, choice of a wrong word or the wrong metaphor or the wrong assumption. And so you got to be grateful, you know, eternally grateful that as naive as I was at the time, I passed through that hurdle without failing, right? Now, now what was... Because you went on to work for business objects for a time, is that right. how you you got to sit beside him and watch him sort of evaluate deals? That are... Yeah, no, it was like basically post deal. It was you're going to run this like a business unit inside of this large company, and we're not going to change you or do anything to you. Just get on with it, and we did that. And we basically atex the revenue, uh, the run rate, and stuff. Like we were running at eight eight million uh, run rate within 18 months, I forget precisely, but it was somewhere around there, right? So we basically, um, it was phenomenal, right? I mean, it's, it's not rocket science because they have like hundreds of salespeople around the world. And you know, so you pour this stuff into their sales process and channel with the right communication, messaging and pricing and their brand weight behind it, 
people bought it, right? That is the ultimate definition of a strategic sale, built to sell. I mean, listeners, if you're listening to this, I, this is the, a classic example of the difference between a financial acquisition and a strategic. A strategic, in this case, business objects, was looking at this and saying, what more of our products, in this case, business objects, can we sell by acquiring Nick's company? It yeah. wasn't, you know, it wasn't thinking about, you know, multiples of EBITDA. It was oh, how no. much more of our stuff can we sell? Because you know, if we go out and acquire this this little company from England, right? And and the, and the crazy thing is, if 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 you as a software company take your product too far, you know, you actually destroy that potential because you want to leave the upside for the acquirer to have those massive multiples into all these different territories, right? Because if you take it away, there's no upside for them to pay for. Uh, but they, they, you know, that's a very common common situation, and you see they get, they definitely got better at it after different acquisitions. I mean, some products did better than than ours in the growth, um, but it it was a function of you acquire a product. There is a process and a skill and an art to you know, onboarding a new technology and deploying it out to the sales force and getting people to sell it. Right? It's 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 definitely like a bit of a black art, but it was a lot of fun. So, and then. After 18 months, they basically declared, it was a really weird situation because uh, I was technically on a three-year golden handcuff. And they um, said, um, hmm, priorities have changed. We now need to move into the analytic applications business. So basically, instead of just business objects as a tool, we're going to create you know, a full stack of reports and analytics and a data warehouse and everything ready-made for, say, uh, for the sales function, uh, for the HR function, for the finance function. We can create like supply chain analytics, blah, 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 and charge a lot more money for it. And the thing was, if we didn't do it, we actually risked, business objects risked um, being displaced by other vendors who were doing that, right? So, and and the set technology was, was a kind of integral part of that. And so they said, you know what? We don't want you to run this as a business movement anymore. We want you to go and build um, the analytics. Actually, they didn't say that. They said, this is what we're doing. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I actually had to end up, it was a weird situation because one, I'm like, firstly, I've sold you on a, and sold my company to you to do certain thing. And now you're saying that that's not what you want to do anymore. So should I just leave? And then someone, someone, said, someone said to me, be careful what you wish for. Because like if I'd started complaining, and, and rolling that ball, I could have been out the door within, they would say, yeah, sure, we agree, you're not right, let's go, here's the cash, leave, right? In the end, I actually pitched them and said, you know what, I have more of a clue and an idea how to go build this stuff than anyone else in your company. Give me the team, give me the resources. So I basically gave away my product, my baby, <laughs> so to speak, the firstborn, uh, to a different team. They took over my technology and I went and took I took three or four of my team out of a team of 12 or something um, and went and hired another 20 people and went and built like 20 odd products in the next two years for business objects. Like it was fun. It was like, it was like the opposite from the, you know, low funded startup. We were on like ship a product, at least one product every um and they were so quarterly focused, so it was always you know once every three months, right? And and we went and did that, and it was it was a lot of fun, and and it was crazy to think of the bit I love most about it was being inside this. Like I feel like here I was instead of sitting in my garden with a spade digging, I suddenly had this big mechanical beast with 
huge power and levers and reach and budget and all and team and resources, right? But Nick, how did how did that impact the deal for you? Because I'm assuming the 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 eight to ten in cash, right? Uh, it, it, that had uh, I'm like what portion of that was was paid up front versus in some sort of earnout or you know, oh, in I the think future. There was no, there were none. None of it was um, conditional, but it was paid. Uh, at, you know, so long ago I don't specifically remember, but it was paid out over uh, a little, a little bit. There was a little bit of a hold back, and but it was paid pretty quickly. But it wasn't contingent on you meeting certain thresholds in the future. No, not at all. Not at all. No, we just didn't. We didn't agree to any of that stuff. Right? It was like, you, and you really shouldn't because you cannot control. If I'd agreed to stone stuff, and then this thing comes about, like which happened to me, like. That changes everything, and then you're not you. You have power pre-exit to negotiate the the right terms and conditions. Once you're inside a big company and someone's moving the goalposts on you, you have no power whatsoever, right? So I'm glad we didn't have any of that, and it let me be more valuable to them because I could just be Nick, right? I I could go and do all the crazy shit that I would do just not naturally and intuitively, and not worry about how I should behave inside a big company, right? If you set people too many goals and expect too much, then you, everyone behaves in the way they think they want you want them to behave. And you're way better off having, if you hire a rebel, go get him to be rebellious, right? Don't don't try and conform him. If you want to conform people, go hire people that fit that bill. It'd be much more effective. As you look back on the sale now, what would you do differently if you had it to do all over again from the start? You know, I don't think there's really much I would really change, right? Because like, if I said that, if I said yes to any of that stuff, I would like, no, you know, it would like, I think I thought it was, it wore me out. I think for sure. Like, and, and I should really have like today I've got more of a, it was a roller coaster and people pay to go on roller coasters. Right. Uh, it's meant to be a fun experience. And there were lots of it. that was a fun experience, but too much legal interaction, too much, like, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's so much more at stake than you, you sell to one customer and it's like a hundred thousand deal and they buy it or they don't buy it. You don't, you know, it doesn't, it's not life changing. Right. But it's exhausting this on and off the win the deal, close the deal. It's not on. It's like, you know, and you, you're sitting here calculating and, and kind of strategizing. So I don't, I don't think it just pays. I don't think there was anything that I did that would be done differently. I just think I could have enjoyed it more. Right? I think I let myself get worn out. Like post business objects, I was like, I don't want to do software. I'm really done with it. And I went and published a board game, which because it was a, a lifelong passion to go publish a board game. So I did. And it, it won a whole lot of awards. It ended up in, you know, 12 languages and cool stuff. But it was a, that was some of that was a visceral reaction to I'm done with software. And I and, it, and I've come around to I now love software. <laughs> like, I'm like, Oh, that was my natural native passion. It's good to be in it again. And I think it, it, it beat some of that out of me a little bit. Uh, and I think that's just that was just a, um, a perspective thing, right? I could have said, you know what, I'm on a roller coaster, and it's fun. Enjoy the rides. It's going to be ups and downs. That's the thrill of the roller coaster. And, and was, as you look back now, I mean, why was it so emotionally draining? I mean, obviously, you know, on again, off again, legal yeah. side, you know, how would it be different if the exact same deal you were doing today based on, on your current 
circumstances. You yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it would be different, but and I think I, I don't think it, it was afterwards. I felt just drained from it, right? And was there part of you that felt um, like it was life changing money on the table, and and now if the same deal were, it wouldn't be life changing anymore. So you can maybe relax a little bit. Would that be fair to say? Would that have factored into your, or am I putting words in your mouth? I don't know. No, I'm, I'm just saying. Generally, I think it's worth if you're gonna if you choose to be an entrepreneur, right? Whether you have an exit or not, it's kind of irrelevant. I think you should do it because you love the journey and you love the thrill of the chase and the the rise and the climb and the fall because it's not all going to be a bed of roses, right? It's going to be a a challenge. Things are not going to go your your way. You get three things in a row. There's something's bad's going to come along, right? And that should just be, of course, there's going to be something bad coming along. That's the way, that's why I'm an entrepreneur, because I love this stuff. And I think I have that much more of that mindset now than I did uh, back then. I think I was just like, ah, oh, I was sort of felt invincible, but realized underneath it all, you're kind of um, taking this, the pressure of it all, right? Um, and it was, you know, and then you, you one of the things I would, you know, I've, and I've heard this from a lot of people is, um, is this fear of someone being a one hit wonder, right? You, know, you do an exit and certainly people just do one exit because one, it's, there's a good degree of luck in there despite what anyone, anyone says there is, right? And it's just, you, you also have a hunger and an, and an energy and, an, and you, you, you saw the world as it was at that point and you saw the opportunity. Will you see that again? I don't know. And so that's, that's a really hard thing. Like if you're going to go and be an entrepreneur, then do it, enjoy every moment of it. Don't wait for the enjoyment later, right? If you spend all this time not enjoying it, that was a big mistake. So I think you know, figuring out what makes you happy and what you really need and what you want and what motivates you will help you approach things in a way that's going to be less destructive in the long run. Because it can be. It can be pretty exhausting. For sure. I mean, it's like if it's a very first world problem, I agree. It's a very weird um, situation to go, oh, right? Oh, Mooney, oh, I'm worried I can't do it again. Well, everyone else is going, oh, I wish I had your problem, right? But it's like, it, and it's true. Like, and I think I had to, my board game was an example of that. I had, I was like, yeah, like pretty darn cool to have gone and published a board game and, and taken it as far as I got. I was like, yep, it wasn't really a one-off, right? It was mindset, energy, enthusiasm, passion. Um, it was a lot of fun to do that. And I think, I think the entrepreneurial spirit in you, if it's really there, you know, be careful not just to plan to turn it off, right? If you, if you make so much money from a transaction, you say, oh, I don't need to do it again. Just remember that the thing that got you excited was doing it in the first place. So if you take that away, what are you going to replace that with golf or painting? Probably not. Well said. What are you doing <laughs> now, Nick? I'm a co-founder of a startup called Listly, which is a um, content marketing platform uh, for list content. So you're used to YouTube being the place for videos and SlideShare for the place for slides and audio um, you know, is on kind of SoundCloud is probably the most famous place for that stuff. Uh, and we believe that lists are a pretty core and um, core part of um, social content. You know, 10 ways to do this, 27 entrepreneurs you need to understand, 16 books you need to read, all that kind of stuff, right? We, we see that every day on our social streams. So and that's so that's that's something I've been working on for a few years now. And I'm also working on a new project um, in the kind of hyper local marketing space. So I'm really 
eternally curious about um, collaborative marketing and, and getting people to work together. And I think I've, you know, if your curiosity is the most valuable thing that you can have, if you can keep yourself curious, there, there is always going to be another opportunity that comes along, right? Um, and I, I, I just love jumping spaces too much. I went from business intelligence to a board game to now collaborative marketing to social platform with Listly. Um, some people, and I've met a lot of people who do this, they just seem to leave one startup, do an exit, and then go back and rebuild something in the same niche. And that's probably very, very sensible. Um, jumping from niche to niche is, is a little more you know, high risk, but... But a lot more interesting uh, along the way. Yeah, that, you know, that's what I feel. It's like, that's my perspective. I love I love jumping into a space and not knowing anyone, right? That's like, okay, clean slate. Who can we go see? Who do we need to know? What do we need? To, what do we need? And it's just, I don't know, that, that, that makes me jump out of bed every morning when I'm in that kind of state and frame of mind when I've got that problem between my, that bit between my teeth. That I know I'm like playing my A game when I'm doing that. So Nick Kelly, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for the invite. It's been fun chatting. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.